Thanks for listening to the Zane Botla podcast. We officially have merch, and right now, 100% of the profits are going to PCRF, Palestine Children's Relief Fund. We got hoodies, we got t-shirts, and again, 100% of the profits going right to PCRF. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. And I want to thank you for supporting my work. How are my teeth looking? Beautiful, man. Thank you. Who's your dentist? Uh, you tell me who's my dentist. I don't know. Whoever the guy is does, <laughs> does an okay job. <laughs> he does an okay job? Just okay. Just okay? Yeah. Decent? Decent. A plus. A plus. Well, the funny thing is I would have gone to you earlier because before when we met, you were working all the way out further than Naperville. Yeah, dude. And that was crazy. I wasn't going to come to you then. And then when you finally moved into practicing in the city, then I was like, oh, okay. Um, I mean, yeah, the two-hour commute, I wouldn't expect you to do that. That, that was brutal for me. Uh huh. You, you already don't like coming to the dentist, so like, uh, why are you going to drive two hours for me? I actually don't mind the dentist because I know a lot of people, they have tooth sensitivity. And I feel I never had uh, tooth seven sensitivity like crazy. There's other parts of my... Uh, body where yes it's clearly more sensitive like my eyes or my ears but my teeth and it'll always be strange to me when people say oh I'm afraid to go to the dentist and I'd say why Uh, because I I just don't get it I'm sure maybe you have patients who are a bit more uneasy at the idea of going to the dentist I mean I get it every day right it's part of the job of like talking people through the anxiety of dentistry I think you're lucky enough to wear, honestly, you have great teeth, so you never really had to deal with the kind of crappy side of dentistry. Um, but yeah, I can see how it can be anxiety-inducing. I mean, some dudes in your mouth and messing around with sharp instruments, you hear weird noises, occasionally it hurts. So like, especially if you get it done at a young age, like, you know, it can traumatize you. I see it a lot. I mean, I will say when I got my two crowns in the back of my teeth, this was before you were my dentist, Yeah, they put anesthesia shots in my mouth and it was so painful really so painful and that was the first time I faced dental pain and then I almost started understanding what people were talking about that oh going to the dentist can be painful yeah um so that was really a eye-opening experience for me yeah and I think that's where really where like choosing your provider really matters right I think um Finding someone you're comfortable with, finding someone that doesn't hurt you, right, I think is definitely possible. I think some people think that they've had a bad experience in the past at the dentist and uh, they feel like they've been in pain afterwards or they've had pain during the procedure. You know, there is pain-free dentistry out there, right? And so, like, when I was in school, one of the things that I asked a lot of my mentors was, like, okay, hey, what's something that I can do outside of just, like, doing good work? that helps you build your practice or helps build your reputation. Because again, at, at the same time, it's sort of like, there's a lot of dentists out there, so you have to find a way to kind of differentiate yourself, right? And so a lot of the professors said like, hey, learn how to give a painless injection, right? And so I spent a lot of time during that, you know, couple of years I was at dental school, researching stuff on YouTube, reading papers on what are the different techniques I can do to try to give a painless injection. So that was one of the things I really worked on um, early on and even through, you know, I try to keep getting better at it um, just to try to give those painless injections, try to do as pain-free dentistry as possible. So that's something that, again, it's something that I really try to embody and, and try to take care of people in that way. What got you into dentistry or what led you to the path of pursuing dentistry? Weirdly enough, I kind of fell into it. So... Um, I was in school and typical brown dude, I was pre-med, right? So as everyone is, right? And I think I, you know, went through all my like prereq classes my first semester and my first semester of college, I still remember this. I finished with a 2.9 GPA and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I'm like, oh shit. Like, uh, looks like I'm not pre-med anymore. Cause I'm not going <laughs> to be able to get in with these grades. So then I was like, okay, let me like, explore my options, see what else is out there in healthcare that I could jive with. And at the same time, also, like, I was shadowing, like, a um, internal physician, and it just wasn't for me. I don't know. I, I didn't see myself doing that for my whole career. Granted, there's other sides of medicine out there. By the time, that's all I was exposed to. I didn't really, you know, no one in my family's come from a healthcare background. 
So I didn't really know, again, what was out there. So I just knew, hey, this is the doctor I go to. Let me go shadow him. And then it just wasn't for me. So then I thought, I was like, okay, hey, I knew a couple of pharmacists. So I was like, oh, let me check out pharmacy school. So I bought like the, the PCAT prep book, right? I opened the first page. There's a bunch of organic structures. And I'm like, uh, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> and then I never opened it again. And then uh, around the same time, my mom had some dental issues. So I took her to the dentist and it was like a guy who was near our house. And then I was like, oh, okay, like this is kind of cool. Like, you know, you come in, you work with your hands, you still take care of people. My mom had dental pain going into it and she left feeling better. So it's sort of like the instant gratification of being able to help somebody. Um, and so I just, I just kept shadowing the dentist, kind of did some more research and, and realized like, hey, this is actually something I really want to do. I think it, it checked off a lot of boxes for me where, you know, it's healthcare based. So I got to help people out. It allowed me to kind of work with my hands. So growing up, I loved tinkering and building things and being creative. So that really kind of helped me out a lot. And then see, it was just really something that I, I could see myself doing because it was just like, it's a people business. So I like talking to people. I got, you know, every day is a little bit different, right? So I realized that every procedure is slightly different. So I, I feel like dentists never really get bored or from what I could tell anyway, they never really get bored because there's always something else different to do. Right. And so that's what really kind of connected with me and went through, you know, the rest of school, shadowed a lot and ended up getting to dental school. And it also helps the fact that you're such a perfectionist in your craft. So, because um, whenever you look at my teeth, you're able to point out very detail-oriented that, oh, this tooth is positioned this way and colliding with this tooth. And I'm sure there's, uh, you know, a lot you learned in dental school, but it's just interesting to see that, okay, this person, they're just looking at teeth all day, that they know teeth so well um, in and out. Um, that they can tell exactly how to fix a tooth, what suggestions, what problems, um, if you're having an ache or a misalignment of a tooth, um, just being able to look at someone's teeth and figuring out what the issue is. Yeah, I know. Um, it's actually interesting because I think dentistry is, every day is like a puzzle to me, right? And I, I love that because it's, it's problem solving. So basically people come in, they have an issue, you have a certain tool belt of things that you can do. I think of myself like a little Batman, right? So you have different little things on your belt that you can do and things you can tinker with, right, to make someone feel better. So you come in, you know, like we – is it okay if I talk about your treatment? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, cool. So Expose me. Expose you. Yeah, so you came in today, right, and you we realized, okay, hey, you said, hey, maybe this tooth is a little out of shape. So I'm like, okay, you know what? We just finished Invisalign. It shouldn't be the case. Let's figure out what's going on. So – you go through kind of a diagnostic, we go through like a diagnostic tree of like, okay, hey, check this box off. Let's do this test. Let's see what's going on. Um, and it's really interesting because it's sort of like you can do these different tests. So in your case, like we, we took a look at it. We could see, okay, hey, two teeth are colliding the way they shouldn't. And there's a way we can resolve that by going back into Invisalign, right? So you can kind of, you know, someone comes in with a cracked tooth you do the testing, see how bad the crack is, what we can do to fix that tooth, um, what we have in our tool belt of dentistry to, in order to get this person out of pain. And depending on the severity of what the issue is, you kind of go down a different rabbit hole of, of treatment. And then you also have to kind of look at the big picture of like, okay, hey, this person's not just this one tooth. What does everybody else look like? And you know, then it's sort of like, what is the best course of action? Is it, do we take care of this one tooth today? Do we take a look at the bigger picture and explain to the patient like, hey, this is what brought you in, but there may be a bigger fire to put out somewhere else. And then explaining that to the patient, kind of making them feel comfortable with treatment. So I feel like a lot of, the, a lot of my day is actually just talking to people and explaining to them and educating them. And I think that's really my favorite part because I think a lot of people, again, they come in with like a preconceived notion of what the dentist appointment is going to look like or what it's going to feel like. And I try to turn that notion on its head a little bit and really kind of focus on making someone feel good and comfortable, educating them on their mouth, and then letting them make the decision that's best for them. Because there's always a different way to do something. I think the joke I always tell people is like, okay, hey, you know, you go to five different dentists, you're going to get 10 different answers. Because at the end of the day, everyone practice, practices slightly differently. Got it. And 
from my understanding, the dentists and the, the physicians and uh, pharmacists and whoever, they almost have very similar prerequisites such as, you know, the chemistries, the biologies, the orgos. Um, it always puzzled me why a field like dentistry would require those types of prereqs. But then someone explained it to me, a dentist friend, that, oh, there's so much you can learn just by looking at someone's mouth or someone's teeth because you can look at, uh, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, in certain ways, if you look at someone's mouth, you can tell uh, maybe if they have uh, hypertension or uh, they have some sort of chronic illness. And um, the same thing I hear about looking at someone's eyes, you can tell certain things. So um, do you kind of see that in your patients too, that you can almost draw connections or problems that they have with their teeth or their gums to other underlying issues? Yeah, for sure. I think there is definitely a connection between the oral cavity and the rest of your body, right? I think the links are still being studied and, and kind of shown. The big links being periodontal disease. So basically, gingivitis has an older brother named periodontitis. So if, like, let's say you have gingivitis, you hear on the TV ads, like, okay, hey, you know, if you have, most people have gingivitis. Basically, gingivitis is localized gum irritation. But what happens is if you don't do a good job cleaning your teeth, brushing your teeth, getting all that stuff out from in between your teeth, the bacteria that live in your gums can turn from breathing air to not breathing air. And then when they stop breathing air, they start breaking down the connective tissues and kind of eating those things around your gums, right? When that happens, it triggers an inflammatory pathway in your body. So imagine like the analogy I use, the surface area of your gums, okay, is about the size of your hand, okay? So imagine wow. having an active infection the size of your hand uh, anywhere on your body, wow. right? You wouldn't really like that, right? But then most people that have periodontal disease have the infection the size of their hand, but it's in their mouth and they don't think about it. So what happens is those bacteria destroy the connective tissue, this inflammatory cascade occurs, and it causes the destruction, the breakdown of the bone and the ligament surrounding your teeth, right? And it's not a process that happens overnight. It takes years and years and years to kind of develop and, you know, keep going, but it's something that is linked, the bacteria that, you know, form there are linked to Alzheimer's disease. It's linked to hypertension. It's linked to plaques that build up in your heart. Um, a lot of the times, you know, if you're getting a knee replacement surgery, you actually need a dental clearance because the bacteria in your mouth can actually go systemic and cause bacterial plaques on your knee replacement and cause it to fail. So there's definitely, you know, links between the system, you know, the systemic health of your body and your mouth. Um, additionally, like there's kind of indirect things that we can see, right? So one thing that you notice, okay, hey, if a person is drinking a lot of sugar or drinking a lot of soda, eating a lot of sugar or carbonate, like, you know, heavy carb things, generally speaking, they usually have cavities going on, right? There's breakdown of the enamel in their, in their teeth, in their mouth. And then you start asking them the cascade of questions like, hey, what was your last A1C? Do you have diabetes? Do you have hypertension? And it's sort of like all these little indirect effects. So I think one crazy story I have from when I was first practicing the first year out, I had a person come in and they exclusively drank Coca-Cola. And I kid you not, they had a hole in the front two teeth. Oh my God. And it was exactly the same size. As, and I was like, oh, how do you drink it? And they're like, oh, I sip on it through, you know, just kind of sipping it and basically melted away a hole in their teeth from the acid from the Coke, and then also the bacteria and the sugar ate away their tooth structure. So it's a, you know, and I'm sure like if you're exclusively drinking Coca-Cola, then you always obviously have other systemic issues that probably come about from that as well. Wow, I didn't even think about it like that. Are there significant challenges that you see with your patients uh, in the sense that are there certain obstacles for them to not meet a certain dental goal? If you tell them, hey, you need to start brushing twice a day or you need to start flossing or start taking, if it's a more severe condition, take XYZ procedures to take care of your dental health. Are there either personal obstacles or systemic obstacles that prevent them from getting the treatment that they need to 
follow? Yeah, I think a lot of it is patient motivation, right? So like the joke I have, right, is a lot of patients, they floss twice a year when they come in and we floss them for them, right? It comes down to being like, you know, most people I see them a few times a year if they have work to do or things going on. But 90% of it has to do with habits at home. So brushing twice a day, flossing in between your teeth to kind of get things out and just being good about taking care of yourself. So like one thing that I think people don't really consider when talking about their oral health is snacking, right? So you don't really think about snacking impacting your teeth. But what happens is when you eat some food, right, the pH in your mouth drops, right? So basically the bacteria in your mouth break down carbohydrates and produces lactic acid, right? So the lactic acid drops the pH in your mouth. And because your teeth are mineral-based, right, so calcium, um, calcium-based, what happens is when the pH drops, the, the calcium ions actually leach away from your teeth. And when it does that, your teeth actually become softer and more susceptible to the acid erosion and, and damage, basically, right? And then what happens is the bacterial plaque, so like the food leftover bits kind of just hang out on your teeth and basically breaks down your teeth. So you kind of wears away. So the analogy I use for that is sort of like your tooth is like a peanut M&M. Okay. So you have a hard crunchy outside. That's your enamel. You have the chocolate inside below that, right? Which is your dentin. And then the peanut, which is your nerve, right? A cavity can start off in the enamel, right? Because it kind of has to break through that layer to get through it. Right. You can have a cavity that's isolated just to your enamel, and they can stay like that for years. So if, let's say I see that on your x-ray, and I'm like saying, hey, buddy, like you really need to floss and keep it clean. I could see you for the next decade. And as long as you do a good job of keeping that area clean and keeping that area plaque-free, that cavity will actually arrest in that spot and stop moving because it no longer has the fuel, aka the food and stuff that you eat, to move forward, Right? But let's say you don't listen to me and you still keep snacking and don't floss and don't brush. Dang, you don't have to expose me like I'm that. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I'm using you as a very specific right, example, it's right? Okay. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> so let's say you don't listen to me, right? And then we allow you to keep going. That cavity will break through to the chocolate layer, the dentin. Dentin is a lot softer than enamel. So even within six months, if you keep up with your habits, that decay can travel all the way to your nerve. And then you're looking at a root canal, crown, a lot more expensive and invasive work compared to just brushing and flossing every day. So the joke is like the deeper into the tooth the cavity goes or the issue goes, the more expensive it gets. Interesting. Because it's not like this is just some push from a big, big tooth entity saying, hey, brush twice a day, floss once a day. Yeah, so that you to, sell more toothpaste. Exactly, yeah. to sell more toothpaste, to sell more dental floss, um, to sell more toothbrushes. It's, it's, well, uh, you get your toothbrush for free from your dentist, right? Oh, yeah, that is true. There you go. But then that's the dental insurance uh, industrial complex yeah. pushing you to take advantage. Well, yeah, I mean, big teeth does exist, right? I think big the, teeth does exist. Big All teeth right. does exist. There's a lot of multinational corporations that are involved in big teeth. But that being said, even if you used, you know, just a dry brush mm -hmm. and I don't know, string from the street to, to get rid of the stuff, <laughs> it'll still work, right? So like the the thing you need to do is consistency. It doesn't matter what toothbrush, you know, what toothbrush you use, doesn't matter what toothpaste you use, doesn't matter what floss you use. The idea is just you got to just get the stuff off your teeth. So if you, if you get the stuff off your teeth, then you shouldn't have any problems. Yeah. Well, I do hear that in the rabbit holes of the internet of the big tooth conspiracy that fluoride is actually harmful Stop. for you. I know I hate bringing this up, the fluoride conversation, but maybe you have a little bit. Let, let, let me hear the truth about fluoride unless you don't, uh, you know. I get it. Like I, I understand where people come from with fluoride, not trusting the... Uh, Big, big tooth, right? Big tooth out there. Um, I would put fluoride deniers in the same boat as anti-vaxxers. Oh, same boat as people who don't believe in the moon landing. 
the same boat as people who think the earth is flat because they're all in the same party. Dang, why'd you lump me in with them? I'm sorry, man. Uh, but basically the idea is there's a couple studies that came out that showed neurotoxicity of fluoride, right? So their idea is like, oh man, I don't want a neurotoxin in my body, right? But what people fail to consider is everything is lethal in a certain dose, right? So you got to look at the dosage, right? So the amount of fluoride that we're adding to water or adding to the additives of toothpaste or, you know, your floss, your fluoride varnish, things like that it's such a minuscule amount that it's not going to cause you any developmental issues. It's not going to cause any real neurotoxicity. But the idea is the benefits you get from it are pretty significant. So the reason why you add fluoride, excuse me, to these products is basically, remember I told you earlier how your teeth are calcium-based? Yep. So what fluoride does, it actually replaces some of the calcium in your tooth. Okay, mm -hmm. And what that means is calcium, I remember this from periodic table, right? Calcium is sort of like, it's in between, it's very reactive, but not that reactive. Fluoride is extremely reactive, right? So what happens is when it reacts with your tooth, it actually forms a stronger bond to your tooth and it makes it less likely to break down. So remember I told you earlier about, hey, the bacteria poop and pee, lactic acid, and it breaks down your tooth. Calcium is like not strong enough to withstand that, but the fluoride is. So the fluoride kind of protects and forms this little layer on your tooth, right? So it's, it goes from hydroxyapatite, which is the formal name of enamel, to fluoroapatite, which is a lot stronger and more resistant to whatever attack that's happening in your mouth via your eating or hygiene habits. So the idea is the fluoroapatite then will form on your teeth by using these fluoridated products and protect you from getting further cavities and things like that. So uh, there's plenty of like public health studies that show at a large scale um, what communities look like and the prevalence of cavities in communities that have fluoridated water versus non-fluoridated. And anecdotally, like I see patients, right? When I was working on the suburbs, I saw patients who were on well water, who water, the water had no fluoride. And I saw people who were on municipal water who, you know, had fluoride growing up. And the most susceptible population is children, right? The reason why is their adult teeth are still developing when they're born. Um, and so those teeth are definitely more susceptible because the idea is when you're ingesting fluoridated water or these products, developmentally, your teeth will actually form the fluoroapatite ahead of time. And so basically your tooth will come out with this little Iron Man layer on it to help protect it from, you know, cavities. So even anecdotally from these populations of patients that I saw that were on well water versus municipal water, I noticed a big difference in cavity prevalence, right? So the idea is like, okay, hey, great. If you're anti-fluoride person, fantastic. You know, you do you, but just know you're going to spend a crap ton more in your dentistry over the years uh, compared to the people that have fluoridated products because your teeth are going to be weaker and more susceptible to the cavities. So fluoride's not a concern with big tooth, but big tooth is still a concern because of the corporatization of dentistry or is there yeah is that kind of the, like the underlying theme of the concern there yeah so big tooth is definitely the concern in regards to the corporatization of dentistry i think and it's not even big tooth in the sense of like the companies that own dental offices but also big tooth being dental insurance companies which i think are the main problem with dentistry in america today dental insurance is probably one of the biggest scams in America right now because these CEOs claim that they're looking out for patients. They claim that they're looking out for providers, but all they're doing is taking the money in between and are getting these million dollar plus paychecks every year for basically scamming both companies, dentists, and patients out of money. In a, in a sense, when it comes to dental insurance for most people, it's something you just sign up through from your employer and then you know, okay, I get two visits a year or X amount of visits a year, I get this much covered. But we tend to not think anything beyond the fact that, okay, as long as my visits are covered, I don't care what happens behind the scenes or what is happening behind the scenes. So would love to hear more about just generally behind the scenes, how big tooth, I guess, is, yeah. we'll, we'll just call it big tooth from now on. Yeah, so what? big tooth. So 
let's talk about first how dental insurances work, right? So your employer signs up with um, a dental insurance company, okay? So this dental insurance company basically is a numbers game, right? So basically they'll say, hey, Zane, you have $1,000 a year from us. Use it towards whatever you like. Here's all the things that we cover at a certain percentage, right? So the way it works is they say that to you and your employer, right? Your employer and you pay a certain amount of money per month towards that dental insurance, right? And usually it's like what? Like a couple, 50, 60 bucks, whatever. And in your mind, okay, great. I'm paying, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks a month, but I get my two cleanings year covered and I get them paying towards whatever major work I have going on. So I'm going to come out on top. In reality, what's actually happening is they're taking that money, okay? And they're turning around to the dentist and being like, hey, look, I have Zane's whole employer, all the pay, all the all these people that work at their office. Now, if you go and network with us, meaning like, hey, you're okay with taking our discounted rate, I'm gonna send, I'm gonna put you on my website and say, hey, you're an in-network dentist with XYZ dental insurance company. And as a dentist, you're like, oh man, like I need marketing, I need people coming in my door. So let me go ahead and sign up and become an in-network provider for you, right? So now I signed up and in the fine print, it's like, okay, great. So by accepting these patients from XYZ insurance company for every cleaning, instead of let's, I'm just gonna make up numbers here. So just to keep around, let's say your fee at the office is $100 for a cleaning. Okay, but by becoming a in-network provider and contracted with your insurance company, now you're okay with getting paid 50 bucks for the same cleaning. Okay, so in my mind, it's like, okay, great, whatever. Like I'm going to get all these people in and they'll maybe have work for me to do. So if I get paid half of what my normal fee is, that's okay because I'm going to get money through volume. And initially back in the day when dental insurances first started up, this was great because for a lot of people, it's sort of like, oh, I only want to go to an in-network dentist who I want to see, blah, 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 blah. And patients were trained and kind of misled to being, hey, you can only go to an in-network provider, right? Those are the places where you have the best benefits. In reality, you can also be what's called an out-of-network provider, meaning that you're not in-network with the same dentist. So for example, for cleanings and things like that, those are considered preventative visits, right? Mm-hmm. 90% of the time, regardless of your insurance, is usually covered at 100%, okay? So being an out-of-network provider, right? So you come to me, I'm an out-of-network provider, right? So I'm like, hey, Zane, my cleaning's 100 bucks. You're still not paying anything out of pocket for your cleaning, right? Right. But your insurance company is now paying me 100 bucks instead of paying me the 50 bucks that they're paying an in-network provider, right? And what that creates is for the in-network providers, they're thinking, oh man, like, hey, I'm gonna get all these great patients in. And a lot of the time, yeah, great, you're doing a service. But what what happens is you and your employer are paying these premiums for your dental insurance. They're not paying the dentist an appropriate amount of money. So who's really making the money in between? It's the middleman, right? So. I think one of the biggest dental insurance companies, I think they cover maybe 20 or 30% of the US population. That's how popular they are. And they cover that many people. So they're like, oh, hey, look, we have this many millions of patients. And if you accept us as an in-network provider, we're gonna send all these patients to you as an in-network provider, right? But at a certain point, like some patients, A, don't care, and they'd rather be with a better provider, right? right. But at least initially, a lot of dentists sign up for these insurances, not really realizing they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Because guess what? If you're a part of this dental network, right, there might be 500 dentists on this list. So how are they going to find you anyway? Right. Right. So then it comes down to other forms of marketing in the first place. So even though you signed up for these reduced fees, you're still kind of screwed because the patient still has to wade through 500, 1,000 dentists on their you know, dental insurance website to try to find you, right? right? On top of that, dental insurance reimbursement rates are actually going down rather than up to adjust for inflation. So in the 1980s, most people still had, oh, hey, you have a thousand bucks a year, you have 2000 bucks a year towards your dental insurance, right? So imagine $1980 versus $2023, how much inflation is taking place. But guess what? We're still seeing people having 
1500 bucks, 1000 bucks, $2,000 to spend towards a dental care, even though between inflation, cost of supplies, cost of labor, everything has gone through the roof. So who gets stuck in the middle and gets squeezed? The dentist. And so then here's where the other big tooth player comes in, the dental service organizations, okay? So DSOs, as they're called, are corporate entities that own dental offices, right? So you might be wondering like, oh, hey, like if these, if dentists are struggling to cover their overhead and, you know, deal with these dental, crappy dental reimbursement rates, how are these corporations coming in and even making money, okay? Right. So the way they do it is scale, right? So they're coming in like, hey, I think one of the bigger, like some of the bigger DSOs, they own 1,000, 1,500 offices. So, right, so then this big tooth A, AKA the DSOs, then approach the dental insurance companies and they're like, hey, look, we have a thousand offices. We have trained our dentists to have better outcomes. So in turn, you should pay us more because we have everything streamlined. We have everything ready to go. We know that if you send your patients to us, we're gonna give them the best possible care. Is that true? Who knows, right? But they have enough leverage then to negotiate with those dental insurance companies and be like, hey, we want to get paid more if you want us to stay in network. Because guess what? It is a somewhat of a symbiotic relationship. Because guess what? If this thousand office place decides, hey, you know what? We're no longer taking this insurance. That's thousands of patients that then, you know, may or may not want to keep that insurance company for the next year, right? So mm -hmm. it's sort of like you have to have enough leverage to you know, kind of argue with the insurance company. But what that does is it squeezes who? The little people, AKA the private practice owners and also the, the patients, right? Yeah. Because yeah. now it's one- They have less one, selection for care. They'll have less selection for care. You're choosing one corporate entity over another, right? And the idea is the person getting squeezed the most are the individual dentists. Right? right. So now you have a corporate entity that owns these dental practices. So rather than the dentist being having autonomy to decide what procedures get done, what things get done to their best ability, they're not thinking from a financial standpoint like, okay, hey, excuse me, here's my reimbursement rate for this procedure. Yeah. What do I want to do today? Right. Because most dentists get paid on commission, especially at these corporate offices. So it's sort of like, okay, hey, Zane walks through my door this patient has this insurance company and I'm going to know I'm getting paid this much. You know, there's some, like I used to take insurances and I would get like paid 25 bucks for a filling. Could you imagine $25? And from that, you still get paid a percentage. So I went through undergrad, I went through grad school and then I'm getting paid basically minimum wage, more or less. Wow. Right? Yeah. So, a lot of providers are getting kind of squished on both sides. And so, again, I'm making the minimum wage argument because the other aspect of this, and again, I'm getting to the weeds here a little bit, but basically these dental service organizations and the insurance companies are sponsoring more dental schools. And you might wonder uh, why, why, why are they paying for more dentists to be created, right? They're basically saturating the market. So, it's a supply and demand thing. A few years back, there weren't enough dentists. So guess what? Dem dentists were demanding higher salaries. They were negotiating with these insurance companies to raise their reimbursements. They're asking these dental service organizations for more money to get paid for the services that they do, right? If you have an oversaturated, you know, oversaturated market of dentists who are desperate to seek jobs out, then guess what? Wages go down, reimbursements go down because Guess what? If there's too many dentists everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Patients now can choose whoever they want to go to because there's just a dentist on every block, right? And we're starting to see that a little bit, right? And so it's sort of like, what's more differentiating then? Is a dentist or is a patient going to go to somebody that's in network or out of network, right? A, a patient that's not educated is going to be like, oh, I just want to go to an in network dentist. Let me just go to this person. And if you choose to go out of network, they're like, okay, I'm going to just jump ship and go to this person, right? The kind of crazy thing is the other other aspect of this is dental school is very, very expensive. So you have these young people coming out of dental school with a high student debt ratio, right? Coming out and not finding any jobs in private practices anywhere. So if they can't find a job in private practice, who's going to hire them? 
corporate, corporate dentistry, yeah. right? Hey, we'll come pay you. We'll pay you this much. Come work for us. We'll train you. We'll do all this stuff, right? I fell into that trap myself. I worked for dental, you know, a corporate dental office my first year because, again, I was like, okay, hey, this is the, a great opportunity for me fresh out of school. And then you quickly realize that is not patient-focused. It's very much profit-focused. I think the mission statement was to like we're here to provide for our patients and to provide for our team and to provide for our shareholders or stakeholders. That's what that's what term they used. And if you realize like private equity owns a lot of these firms or a lot of these practices. So I remember when we weren't performing the way we wanted to, they would turn around and turn it on to me like, oh, hey, why aren't you selling more dentistry? These are the opportunities that you had to sell more and do more. And I, I felt kind of weird. I'm like, okay, I'm like, I'm not a salesperson. I'm a dentist. Yeah. Like I'm here to take care of people. I'm here. This is not, this is not what I signed up for. Right. I signed up to do good dentistry, to take care of people, to be ethical about the type of work that I do and not necessarily try to squeeze every dollar out of somebody, uh, for their dental work. And again, this is why dentists have such a bad rep. This is why dentists have a bad name because Dentists are starting, especially these corporate offices, are starting to kind of get squeezed and have their backs against the wall. So they try to find every issue possible because you never know if someone's going to walk through your door again. Yeah, I mean, that that was quite a lot. And it seems like there's so many problems that you identified. It seems that the root of it all ties back to the corporatization and uh, profit incentive behind the dentist uh, industry. It seems that you have this dental insurance company that's trying to uh, make it harder for dentists to practice because they're just trying to squeeze every dollar from that dentist. And a patient, because they are wanting health insurance, dental insurance, vision insurance, they're gonna get the dental insurance and not realize the after effects that would have on the dentist that, hey, even though I'm going to a in-network uh, dentist, this is great. My insurance is covering everything. I don't need to worry about it. And in the meanwhile, the health insurance company is just squeezing every last dollar out of the dentist, which then leads the dentist to make less money, make their business less sustainable. And then it leads them into the route of, okay, what if I, I have no choice but to sell to exactly. a, a DSO, was it? Yes. Um, yeah. So I have no choice but to sell to a DSO. DSO, they're loving this. They're, you know, um, they're loving the, uh, it's actually the private practice going down because another uh, practice under their belt is essentially more profit for them. And then on top of that, both the dental insurance and the DSOs are basically programming these dental schools uh, by funding them to bring their students here because. If you go to private practice, you may or may not be successful in the long run. But with a corporate dentist office, we're going to guarantee your path of success. And how do you measure your success? Profitability, not delivering patient outcomes, not patient outcomes at all. Um, and where do, I guess, dental devices uh, come into all of this? Because I do know a few people in like medical sales, dental uh, device sales, and I know that's slowly becoming a growing market. So, is there are they at all in this corporate realm? Kind of, sorta. I mean, they're definitely more peripheral to this, but it all comes down to again the DSO insurance dynamic. I think you really understood what I was saying. You hit it on the head, right? It's it's they're flooding the market, getting more dentists in the door, and then these dentists are then kind of pushed to get with the backs against the wall because. A, they're young people that probably don't have any business acumen because they only teach you how to be a dentist in school. They don't teach you how to run a business. And then the idea of owning your own practice seems very daunting. So then they take the route of, hey, I'm going to just be a really great practitioner. I'm going to let the DSOs handle everything else. And that's fine. If that's for you, I'm not saying that you know everyone and every, every dentist needs to own their own practice. I think, sure, there's a place for corporate dentistry out there, but... In terms of like what's happening in the market right now, I think since 2008, so the Great Recession, there's been a 30 to 40 percent consolidation of the dental market, meaning that 30 or 40 percent of all dentists are now 
owned by a corporation. Wow. And corporations are kind of sneaky, right? So you've heard of probably Aspen Dental, right? That's one of the biggest DSOs. They're all branded Aspen Dental. So you see them on the block, there's the blue side with the A. There's another big player in the group called Heartland Dental. So Heartland Dental is actually kind of sneaky. They own, I think, last I heard, they own 1,600 offices around the United States. And I think they're expanding to Canada now. Wow. But each individual office is individually branded for that community. So you will never know if you're actually going to a corporate dental office because they're branded individually. Also, they buy out other offices. So like you were saying, when a dentist becomes burnt out from the business side of it, you can actually sell your practice to you know, Heartland. And they will run your office under the same name, but basically have a corporate backend that they run from. And so it's almost, it's kind of tricky as a consumer or a patient to find an office that's okay, hey, you know what, I want to support the local guy. It's almost, you have to almost ask like, hey, are you owned by a DSO or not? Because there's there's just so prevalent out there. And I was reading some research, I think they're saying within the next 10 years, they're saying the dental market is going to be about 60 to 70% saturated, wow. which is crazy, right? So to kind of address your question, like, okay, hey, what about device sales or dental device sales? Yes, there is these dental, you know, side corporations. Um, but what they're doing is kind of vying for the DSO money, right? So they're trying to vie to kind of get into these partnerships with DSOs or get into partnerships with these bigger kind of chain dental offices rather than really focus on the you know lone soldier individual dental office. So I'll give you a perfect example, right? So we have dental labs that we work with. So every kind of contractor that you have in the office, you can negotiate with to a certain extent. So we pay a certain price for crowns versus um, you know other things and other supplies. Again, the the quantity of scale is you know I pay X amount. Let's just say. I don't even, I won't throw out a number, but I pay X amount for a crown to be made for my office. I found out recently a DSO, who was the local DSO, they're not even that big, pays about half of what we pay for a single crown, right? Because just they have leverage of like, hey, we have volume, give us a better deal. So again, you're still getting screwed by being an individual practice owner because you don't have enough volume to then negotiate with this, you know, contractor right same goes for dental implants right so i talked to a sales rep just earlier this week i'm like hey what's the price well she's like oh it depends on volume if you buy a certain amount i can give you a 20 percent discount but if you start in a certain amount i can give you a 50 percent discount so guess what dsos are buying they're buying at a giant volume and they're able to get their things down to a certain lab cost um another big player in the space is invisalign right so like invisalign is owned by align technology they have partnerships with these DSOs to use their product because there are, you know, knockoff or like generic versions of Invisalign, right? Mm -hmm. But certain DSOs have certain partnerships with them and it brings the cost down basically what half of what I'm paying for the same thing, right? So the amount of money that I'm, you know, you're, you're paying for your Invisalign or I'm paying for my Invisalign is twice as much of what a DSO is paying, right? So again, these DSOs just based on volume alone have a competitive edge compared to these private practice owners. So private practice owners really have to be savvy in the way they practice because all their costs are inflated and they have none of the benefit that the DSOs do of having a larger volume to kind of work with. There are kind of buying groups and things like that that have formed over the years. But again, you just have to be almost a savvy business person in order to kind of make it or at least stay afloat in, in this world. I'm sure some DSOs too, they probably still put the same price as a private practice because, because they got it for a cheaper cost and because it's a very profit-driven model, they're like, oh, if I bought it for $50 and the private practice bought it for 100 and we both listed for 150 well, that's an extra 100 in my pocket. Oh, that's exactly only... what happens. Yeah, no, no, no. There's no cost saving passed down to the consumer here. All that money goes straight to the pockets of the private equities and the owners of whoever owns those DSOs. There's no, I remember working from a DSO and then my fees now, my fees at an office of the DSO were my, my lab cost and my Invisalign cost is exactly the same as what I charge now, but except everything costs twice as less at my corporate office of what I pay now. Wow. Yeah. And then I'm sure even from the dentist perspective, sure there's certain advantages that if you're a dentist and you work in a 
corporate office that, okay, I don't have to manage the business side as much. But I'm sure that because there's shareholders at the top, they're probably encouraging you to take more patience in a smaller amount of time because more patience means more profit. Whereas if you own your own business, you can essentially make your own schedule, make your own hours and be more independent. So I obviously in any avenue, when you have your own business, it's um, much more encouraging to you that, okay, I can make my own hours and I can make my own um, schedule. But usually whatever I'm inputting in my energy results in a decent or rewarding output. Whereas for, uh, you know, whether it's a dental, corporate dentist or anything corporate, I could be working twice as hard as the guy next to me. But at the end of the day, we're probably making the same amount of money. Um, and it all depends on office politics and promotion cycles and all that other stuff. Um, so it, it almost makes me wonder that what is the step forward for dentists in the future? I, I know that you, know, you were luckily able to come out of that corporate bubble um, and uh, you know you have your own practice now. So I guess what ticked in your mind that you know I gotta get out of here, do my own thing, and then what would you say um, to? Because the numbers that you're bringing up are very concerning, um, and even you know so many uh, people are graduating from dental school. How would you advise a future dentist or a current dentist that hey? What I advise is follow the path of starting your own practice just like I did uh, or, you know, acquiring a practice. Um, would love to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I think to answer your first question, like what led me to this, I've always wanted to have my own practice. I'm very entrepreneurial from a young age. We can get into that in a little bit, but like, I've always wanted to have my own business. I've always, I've had my own businesses over the years. Um, that I started. So when it came to dentistry, I always knew that was going to be my path. And I've kind of like made these conscious and unconscious decisions over the years to kind of get me ready for that, that path. Um, in terms of advice, what I would give to a young dentist or a dental student or, you know, a dentist that feels like they're stuck. I think to be honest in dentistry, the, the path forward is entrepreneurship or figuring out a place that at least will offer you true equity in in your practice where you can at least earn beyond what you're actually producing right because it is commission-based so basically there's no pto in dentistry right so when you take time off you're not producing dentistry aka you're not getting paid right so if you feel you know threatened or daunting of the idea of owning your own practice it is a lot of work right you know i'm always working there's always something going on there's always something to do with my practice but at the same time, I find that very rewarding. It's, I'm passionate about it. And so if you're not passionate about that, then find a practice that's ethical. Find a private practice that you feel like you can work with and find somewhere where you can have some growth potential beyond just being a hired help, basically a high paid employee. Find somewhere where you can grow yourself. I'm sure you have it with your company, right? There's RSUs, right? So you have restricted stock units. You have, you have equity or you have some skin in the game. So find a place where you can get skin in the game um, and grow your value beyond just being an employee. Well, I've learned so much about dentistry, about teeth, about big teeth. Big teeth. Big tooth. If, if it's singular, it's big tooth. Teeth. Yeah, but if it's I, multiple, it's big teeth. So since there's multiple entities, the dental insurance, the DSOs, will this day forward coin it big teeth. Um, I'd love to learn more about your other entrepreneurial avenues. I know, you know, one of your biggest passions is uh, cooking. Yeah. And a funny story about how we met as well. We can dig into that. Uh, but, um, you know, your entrepreneurial route in terms of cooking or maybe other entrepreneurial ventures that you've had. Yeah. So I grew up in Atlanta. Um, my parents have always been small business owners. They've owned restaurants my whole life. So... I kind of grew up in the back of the kitchen. My parents used to own Dairy Queen. I hung out back there. My dad's owned a few Indian restaurants over the years and a butcher shop over the years. So I've always been kind of in the backseat or in the foreground of 
you know, a small business owner. And, and it's been interesting because it's like, okay, cool. I get to see the good, the bad, the ugly of anything hospitality related, but then also the, the struggles of being a small business owner. Right. Um, but yeah, I kind of grew up doing that and I fell in love with cooking. So I went through this whole phase of like, okay, Hey, am I going to be a chef? Am I going to be a dentist? Like, what am I going to do? And it was kind of cool because it culminated in me appearing on MasterChef during my third year of dental school. So I ended up meeting Gordon Ramsay. Um, I got to cook alongside him. I got to you know meet Aron Sanchez, Joe Bastianich, and be on this cooking show. And I basically put my whole dental career on pause to go try to see if I wanted to be a culinary person. And the experience was super cool. I, I made my lifelong dream of Gordon Ramsay yelling at me come true. <laughs> Um, did he call you an idiot sandwich? Not an idiot sandwich, but he did get pissed at me a few times regarding <laughs> random stuff. So it was really awesome. Uh, you got to eat my food, which was really, really cool. So having Gordon Ramsay tell you your food is good is so validating. It's really crazy. Like I, I still can't believe that actually happened. Um, but it was neat because it was, it was sort of sort a validation of like, okay, hey, if I really wanted to go down this path, I could do it. And then the kind of entrepreneurial side came out when I was done. Um, I kind of used that, you know, used that platform I got for myself to do pop-up dinners, things like that. And I got to, again, got to flex my entrepreneurial side to like put together marketing, figuring out food costing, how much everything's going to be. Um, and yeah, it was just really neat, really neat experience I got to kind of do. And the funniest part is I saw the episodes, the season of MasterChef that you were in. And this is before I met you. Mm -hmm. So a funny story for the audience is when I first moved to Chicago, um, we went to our friend Yad's place and then I saw you. And there's certain times where I'll see someone I know or someone I think I know. And I'll just say, hey, like, I feel like we've met somewhere. Sometimes we have met somewhere before. Sometimes we haven't. But you just had a very familiar look. So then I said, hey, what's your name? You said Farhan. I said, for some reason, I feel like <laughs> We've met before. Where are you from? And then you said Atlanta. And I'm like, uh, I honestly don't know too many people in Atlanta, but I was trying to trace back maybe where we could have met. And then uh, it, was, it was bothering me the whole night uh, that where do I know this guy from? Whatever, I'm going to move on. So then when we were leaving, you just said, uh, by the way, I think I know where you know me from. <laughs> And I said, where? And he said, uh, I was on MasterChef. And then Ooh. that blew my mind. I messed because, with you all night because yeah. I wouldn't tell you. No, it legit messed with me because I'm like, where do I know this guy? Yeah. And then I realized that, oh, season nine, you were on there. Yep. Uh, you f did really well, too. And I was rooting for you the whole way because I'm like, oh, here's this Desi guy. Yeah. And uh, I felt like we didn't get enough representation for South Asia in MasterChef in all the previous seasons. So it was just... Funny that I was rooting for you, and then I met you in person, and then you know, still rooting for you now in your yeah, man, in your it. dental practice. <laughs> um, I'm sure. Uh, I guess my perception of the judges and the show, at least, is um, Gordon Ramsay. He's very critical and very passionate, but he's very reasonable. Uh, like I, at least, what I see in MasterChef is his criticisms are relatively reasonable. Um, people like Aron and uh, 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 Graham, uh, Graham Elliott. Graham's uh, not on the show anymore, it's Joe. Oh right? yeah, you're right. But when it was Aron and Graham Elliott, they were, you know, the kind of more soft-hearted and yeah. uh, a little bit more, oh, I'm not going to yell at your face. And then for me, Joe was just straight up mean. Um, and I would just watch the show. I'm like, man, I don't know how I would react with Joe trying my food. Yeah. Um, but in, in your season, that's when they did the coaches, right? Yeah. Or the mentors? Yep. So who was your mentor? My mentor was Aron. Okay, your mentor yeah. was Aron. Nice. Yeah, no, it was cool because someone who understands those flavors, you know, flavored South Asia was really neat. Um, but I think it was cool because I think Gordon kind of gets a bad rep. He, again, puts on this front of being like this big, mean dude, calls people idiots. He's actually a really nice guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Of the three judges, he actually spent time with us and hung out and like said hi and hello and you know, made an effort to kind of get to know us a little bit. So really cool guy, you know, shout out Gordon Ramsay. Say, what's up? You got him on speed dial? Uh, yeah, dude, I can call him right <laughs> now. <laughs> no, but um, 
the the thing is with Gordon Ramsay, from my perspective, is the show that of his that I watched the most was Master Chef. Yeah. Sometimes I'll dabble in you know the kitchen nightmares and the Hell's Kitchens and whatnot. But in those shows, I always felt like he was overacting yeah. for TV. But then for Master Chef, he was a bit more real, and I felt Joe was the one who was a bit more overacting. If he saw something he didn't like, he would just straight up be mean and throw it in the trash or be very disappointed that I can't believe you've served this to me. I know. Um, well, to be honest with you, I think he's just a white white man who doesn't know flavors. So I think it's just <laughs> like one of those things where multiple times I think he tried my food and it was a little too spicy for him. But I'm like, dude, like, you know, not everything's Italian food, which is black and pe- black pepper salt. Like there's, there's more to the world than just, you know, Eurocentric cuisine. So I think that was my biggest... Uh, kind of gripe with that but I, you know what it is what it is I think was that your gripe with Joe in particular or with MasterChef in general because I do think that in general it, when it comes to quote-unquote fine dining cuisine or exquisite cuisine it is very Eurocentric um, whereas if you look at you know South Asia or uh, Eastern Asia um, uh, sorry yeah Eastern Asia um, and uh, even parts of South America that are deemed in Africa that are deemed, uh, you know, maybe lower class or, um, you know, oh, these are the parts of the world that, uh, you know, we don't really care about the cuisine. Those are the areas that I like the cuisine the most. And I feel like Eurocentric is at the bottom of my list. So did you feel that, oh, when I was part of MasterChef, there was kind of a push to have the flavors be Eurocentric? I think the flavors, not so much, but I definitely think that maybe the preparations for sure. They're definitely more American, more Eurocentric. Um, that being said, I try to buck the mold every time, and I think that's kind of what set me apart. But then also sometimes shot me in the fo- you know shot me in the foot a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean it is what it is, right? I think again, I'm on an American TV show for an American audience on Fox. Like, what do you really recommend? Like, what do you expect? Right? It 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 is going to be catering towards a wide American audience. Um, but that being said, it was cool to be on the show. I think it was neat to kind of showcase my style of food, which is like combining American food with Desi food, which is really fun. Um, cause it kind of shows my background of growing up in the South. Right. That being said, it's been really cool to kind of watch over the years. I think you've probably noticed it too, especially being from Houston. Like we went from growing up and basically anytime we want to eat food out, that wasn't like, that was a Bia, halal, you know, it would be just Desi food or Arab food, but now we're sort of seeing this first and second generation food that's coming up. Yeah. That's a that's a mix in cross cultures. That's really, really cool. No, I, I think it's amazing because coming from Houston, Houston is, when it comes to the uh, it's halal amazing. scene, yeah. it's just so, you get every cuisine. You can get Thai food, you can get American food, you can get uh, Chinese food, you can get Mexican food, you can get anything you name. And then even now, uh, the cuisines that may not be as popular, um, you'll even get like Malaysian food yep. or Uyghur, um, food. Uyghur food. Like it's yeah. just very uh, food that probably the average American has never even tried or doesn't even know what it looks like. Yeah. And speaking of like Texas, there's a guy out of Fort Worth. Um, what's his name? There's a guy out of Fort Worth. His, his handle Suburb Barbecue. So it's literally like in South Asian mixed with like low smoked American barbecue. Wow. So he does like sea kebab sausages. He does like, like kachumber, like as a side for barbecue, right? He does like dal fry as sort of like a, his take on like chili. It's really, really cool. Um, shout out Zane in, uh, in Dallas or Fort Worth for, you know, he's also Zane. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, why are you giving me a shout no, out? No, 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 not you. Zane Shafi, that's his name. So I, I can get a shout out too though, right? Yeah, yeah, you can get a oh, shout okay. out for being a great podcast host. Thank you, right? Thank you, uh, but yeah, so like Zane Shafi out of uh, Fort Worth, he has a place called Suburb Barbecue. So it combines American Southern low smoke barbecue with Desi flavor. So he does like a sea kebab sausage. He does like dal fry, but in the style of like chili. He has like chutneys alongside like this low smoked hickory smoked barbecue, which is amazing. So um, shout out Zane uh, for pushing the culture forward. And, and I think he just got mentioned in like a big barbecue magazine. So imagine like 20 years ago, 
you know, they'll probably be like, what the hell is this guy doing? Yeah. Right. But now there's actually a space and there's a space in the culinary scene for these second generation kind of cuisines. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about living in America is because there's so many different cultures here, they almost are all start fusing. Mm -hmm. um, that's why you'll see a fusion between Mexican food and Filipino food yep. or fusion between Desi food and, um, you know, American style food. Um, it's just very interesting to see that, you know, this truly is the melting pot for food, for culture, for everything. Um, obviously, America has its problems when it comes to, everything else. as you mentioned, <laughs> everything else, corporatization, uh, you know, we can go, we can do a whole podcast episode on problems yeah. in America, but. Um, but I think on that note, I, I do want to say like, and they kind of, kind of, I think it'll tie everything together is I think the American dream is still alive in certain ways. And I do think entrepreneurship is your way of kind of that freedom, right? Like whether it be your podcast, right? You're, you're putting this together, you're putting yourself out there, you're taking a risk, you're taking a gamble to create this podcast. I took a gamble of buying a dental practice and trying to develop this business, right? But it's a way of kind of economic freedom, but then also freedom from a social justice perspective too, right? Yeah. So like I grew up, my parents had nothing, moved to America with just, you know, whatever they had in their pockets. And my dad kind of worked his ass off for the last 30 years to give us a better life and better opportunity, right? And I'm sure your parents had a very similar story, right? And a lot of people of our skin color have very similar stories, right? They come here, they start a small business, and they just try to survive and try to make it, right? With the hopes that then their children will kind of stand on their shoulders and kind of go to this next level, right? Yeah. So kind of going back to your earlier question, like what advice do you give young people in general? I think entrepreneurship is the way of freedom, right? And I think what people fail to consider, right? Yes, it's a lot of work, right, up front. Yes, it's a lot of BS you have to deal with. But America is kind of built upon corporate entities and, and entrepreneurship in general, right? So even from a perspective of like, okay, hey, creating economic output, right? So it sounds really goofy, but right, the thing I'm blessed to do and the thing that kind of motivates me every day, I have a whole team of employees that work for me, right? Yep. Because I can do my dentistry day to day, I pay their wages. Those wages then help support their families. And then those families can go out and do what they need to do and support their life and create economic value, right? And the thing that I think was really important to me coming into this, right, is again, kind of going back to big teeth, right? and corporate entities in general, right? Just the privatization of America. The issue is people are, people at the top kind of take home the biggest piece of the pie, right? Yeah. Leaving the people at the bottom to scrape for the scraps and just try to make it. So like, for example, a living wage, right? Like people who, you know, are just scraping by may not have a living wage, right? So one thing I was really adamant on going into buying this practice is making sure A, all my employees have a living wage that, you know, everyone can survive and do their thing. B, make sure they have a retirement plan. So like I, all my employees are hourly employees, but they all have a retirement plan. And it's not just because the state of Illinois requires it as of 2024. We've had this plan in place for 20 plus years. And then we even made it more robust since I've joined. The other big thing for me was healthcare. So I grew up, again, my parents were small you know, small business owners, and we had no healthcare coverage. So my mom worked at Walgreens for the sole reason of having health insurance. She wasn't physically able to some days even work, but she still showed up to work in pain to work to get that health insurance. So one thing that was really important to me buying a practice was offering health insurance to all my employees. That's better than what they can get through the health marketplace, right? right. So, and again, us covering a portion of that health insurance to make sure it's easier on them and they can get the help that they need, right? right? Because as corrupt as health insurance and dental insurance and all these insurances are, it's still better than zero coverage. Exactly. So if you're able to provide that for your employees, then, you know, that's great. Um, obviously, why does the employer have to be uh, the middleman the, the middle of yeah. providing these coverages? But within working in the system and operating in the system, the fact that you've been able to provide that avenue, that's that's amazing to hear because yeah. I think a lot of people, especially the people who've 
kind of made it and they're in the, uh, you know, the finance TikTok world and talking about, oh yeah, you just got to the hustle and, uh, you know, make your money and step on everybody's uh, toes that uh, to get your way. I personally disagree with that philosophy because I look at the sense that, okay, I'm look, I'm trying to be very entrepreneurial, not just with this podcast, but just in, you know, as many avenues as I can to kind of break out of the system. But in the same sense, I can still recognize that there are people who won't be able to break out of the system and it's very unfortunate. And how can we lift those people up? Exactly. Um, because a lot of people who, once they've made it to the top, they just forget about the bottom. Yeah. Um, and you have to realize that it doesn't start from trickle down from the top. It's, uh, you have to build the foundation first. Uh, like, you know, all these CEOs and uh, you know, bi- uh, executives of these big corporations, they'd be nothing if all their em- em- uh, employees left tomorrow. Exactly. Um, I'm a firm believer that like, I think even before the practice, even before I was a dentist, I always knew that, you know, when I work hard and if I make it, then I'm going to uplift everyone else around me and help whoever I can. Right. The idea is, this a quote that always sticks with me is a rising tide should raise all ships. Right. So if you're the tide, then you uplift everyone else around you. Right. Because what's the what's the benefit of being at the top if you look around and there's no one there with you. Right. So you got to bring the gang up as you're on your way up, support everyone around you, support other people's adventures, support other people and bring them up with you. Cause what the hell's the point of doing all the things that you do if you're up there by yourself? Yeah. Right. I agree. So, and one of my friends, uh, he says this quote a lot and me and him and you know, a few others are very entrepreneurial and he always says everybody eats. Yep. And he says that because of the sense that he wants everybody around uh, his, like he considers us family. He's like, I want everybody in on uh, in my family at the dinner table, exactly. eating, getting what's theirs. We lift each other up. We don't push each other down. Yep, exactly. Um, so I think that's a mentality we can close out with. Yeah, man. And uh, you know, it was great talking with you, Farhan. Learned yeah, a lot about dentistry <laughs> and your experience with MasterChef. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Hey.